History of England, Chapter Eleven, Part Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay, Chapter Eleven, Part Two. It may be doubted whether that government was not, during the first months of its existence, in more danger from the affection of the Whigs than from the disaffection of the Tories. Enmity can hardly be more annoying than querulous, jealous, exacting fondness, and such was the fondness which the Whigs felt for the sovereign of their choice. They were loud in his praise, they were ready to support him with purse and sword against foreign and domestic foes but their attachment to him was of a peculiar kind. Loyalty such as had animated the gallant gentleman who fought for Charles I, loyalty such as had rescued Charles II from the fearful dangers and difficulties caused by twenty years of maladministration, was not a sentiment to which the doctrines of Milton and Sidney were favourable, nor was it a sentiment which a prince just raised to power by a rebellion could hope to inspire. The Whig theory of government is that kings exist for the people, and not the people for the kings, that the right of a king is divine in no other sense than that in which the right of a member of parliament, or of a judge, of a juryman, of a mayor, of a head borough, is divine, that while the chief magistrate governs according to law, he ought to be obeyed and reverenced, that when he violates the law he ought to be withstood, and that when he violates the law grossly, systematically and pertinaciously, he ought to be deposed. On the truth of these principles depended the justice of William's title to the throne. It is obvious that the relation between subjects who held these principles and a ruler whose accession had been the triumph of these principles must have been altogether different from the relation which had subsisted between the Stuarts and the Cavaliers. The Whigs loved William, indeed, but they loved him not as a king, but as a party leader, and it was not difficult to foresee that their enthusiasm would cool fast if he should refuse to be the mere leader of their party, and should attempt to be king of the whole nation. What they expected from him, in return for their devotion to his cause, was that he should be one of themselves, a staunch and ardent Whig, that he should show favour to none but Whigs that he should make all the old grudges of the Whigs his own, and there was but too much reason to apprehend that, if he disappointed this expectation, the only section of the community which was zealous in his cause would be estranged from him. Such were the difficulties by which, at the moment of his elevation, he found himself beset. Where there was a good path, he had seldom failed to choose it, but now he had only a choice among paths, every one of which seemed likely to lead to destruction. From one faction he could hope for no cordial support. The cordial support of the other faction he could retain only by becoming himself the most factious man in his kingdom, a shaftsbury on the throne. If he persecuted the Tories, their sulkiness would infallibly be turned into fury. If he showed favour to the Tories, it was by no means certain that he would gain their good will, and it was but too probable that he might lose his hold on the heart of the Whigs. Something, however, he must do, something he must risk. A privy council must be sworn in. 
all the great offices, political and judicial, must be filled. It was impossible to make an arrangement that would please everybody, and difficult to make an arrangement that would please anybody, but an arrangement must be made. What is now called a ministry he did not think of forming. Indeed, what is now called a ministry was never known in England till he had been some years on the throne. Under the Plantagenets, the Tudors, and the Stuarts there had been ministers, but there had been no ministry. The servants of the Crown were not, as now, bound in frank pledge for each other. They were not expected to be of the same opinion, even on questions of the gravest importance. Often they were politically and personally hostile to each other, and made no secret of their hostility. It was not yet felt to be inconvenient or unseemly that they should accuse each other of high crimes and demand each other's heads. No man had been more active in the impeachment of the Lord Chancellor Clarendon than Coventry, who was a Commissioner of the Treasury. No man had been more active in the impeachment of Lord Treasurer Danby than Winnington, who was Solicitor-General. Among the members of the Government there was only one point of union, their common head, the Sovereign. The nation considered him as the proper chief of the administration, and blamed him severely if he delegated his high functions to any subject. Clarendon has told us that nothing was so hateful to the Englishman of his time as a prime minister. They would rather, he said, be subject to a usurper like Oliver, who was first magistrate in fact as well as in name, than to a legitimate king who referred them to a grand vizier. One of the chief accusations which the country party had brought against Charles the Second was that he was too indolent and too fond of pleasure to examine with care the balance sheets of public accountants and the inventories of military stores. James, when he came to the Crown, had determined to appoint no Lord High Admiral or Board of Admiralty, and to keep the entire direction of maritime affairs in his own hands and this arrangement, which would now be thought by men of all parties unconstitutional and pernicious in the highest degree, was then generally applauded, even by people who were not inclined to see his conduct in a favourable light. How completely the relation in which the King stood to his Parliament and to his ministers had been altered by the Revolution was not at first understood, even by the most enlightened statesmen. It was universally supposed that the government would, as in time past, be conducted by functionaries independent of each other, and that William would exercise a general superintendence over them all. It was also fully expected that a prince of William's capacity and experience would transact much important business without having recourse to any adviser. There were therefore no complaints when it was understood that he had reserved to himself the direction of foreign affairs. This was indeed scarcely a matter of choice, for, with the single exception of Sir William Temple, whom nothing would induce to quit his retreat for public life, there was no Englishman who had proved himself capable of conducting an important negotiation with foreign powers to a successful and honourable issue. Many years had elapsed since England had interfered with weight and dignity in the affairs of the great commonwealth of nations. The attention of the ablest English politicians had long been almost exclusively occupied by disputes concerning the civil and ecclesiastical constitution of their own country. The contests about the Popish Plot and the Exclusion Bill, the Habeas Corpus Act and the Test Act, had produced an abundance, it might almost be said, a glut, of those talents which raise men to eminence in societies torn by internal factions. 
all the continent could not show such skilful and wary leaders of parties, such dexterous parliamentary tacticians, such ready and eloquent debaters as were assembled at Westminster. But a very different training was necessary to form a great minister for foreign affairs, and the revolution had on a sudden placed England in a situation in which the services of a great minister for foreign affairs were indispensable to her. William was admirably qualified to supply that in which the most accomplished statesmen of his kingdom were deficient. He had long been pre-eminently distinguished as a negotiator. He was the author and the soul of the European coalition against the French ascendancy. The clue, without which it was perilous to enter the vast and intricate maze of continental politics, was in his hands. His English counsellors, therefore, however able and active, seldom during his reign ventured to meddle with that part of the public business which he had taken as his peculiar province. The internal government of England could be carried on only by the advice and agency of English ministers. Those ministers William selected in such a manner as showed that he was determined not to prescribe any set of men who were willing to support his throne. On the day after the Crown had been presented to him in the banqueting-house, the Privy Council was sworn in. Most of the councillors were Whigs, but the names of several eminent Tories appeared in the list. The four highest offices in the state were assigned to four noblemen, the representatives of four classes of politicians. In practical ability and official experience, Danby had no superior among his contemporaries. To the gratitude of the new sovereigns he had a strong claim, for it was by his dexterity that their marriage had been brought about, in spite of difficulties which had seemed insuperable. The enmity which he had always borne to France was scarcely less powerful recommendation. He had signed the invitation of the 30th of June, had excited and directed the northern insurrection, and had, in the convention, exerted all his influence and eloquence in opposition to the scheme of regency. Yet the Whigs regarded him with unconquerable distrust and aversion. They could not forget that he had, in evil days, been the first minister of the state, the head of the cavaliers, the champion of prerogative, the persecutor of dissenters. Even in becoming a rebel, he had not ceased to be a Tory. If he had drawn the sword against the crown, he had drawn it only in defence of the church. If he had, in the convention, done good by opposing the scheme of regency, he had done harm by obstinately maintaining that the throne was not vacant, and that the estates had no right to determine who should fill it. The Whigs were therefore of opinion that he ought to think himself amply rewarded for his recent merits by being suffered to escape the punishment of those offences for which he had been impeached ten years before. He, on the other hand, estimated his own abilities and services, which were doubtless considerable, at their full value, and thought himself entitled to the great place of Lord High Treasurer, which he had formerly held. But he was disappointed. William, on principle, thought it desirable to divide the power and patronage of the Treasury among several commissioners. He was the first English king who never, from the beginning to the end of his reign, trusted the white staff in the hands of a single subject. Danby was offered his choice between the presidency of the council and a secretaryship of state. He sullenly accepted the presidency, and, while the Whigs murmured at seeing him placed so high, 
hardly attempted to conceal his anger at not having been placed higher. Halifax, the most illustrious man of that small party which boasted that it kept the balance even between Whigs and Tories, took charge of the Privy Seal and continued to be Speaker of the House of Lords. He had been foremost in strictly legal opposition to the late government, and had spoken and written with great ability against the dispensing power, but he had refused to know anything about the design of invasion. He had laboured, even when the Dutch were in full march towards London, to effect a reconciliation, and he had never deserted James till James had deserted the throne. But, from the moment of that shameful flight, the sagacious Trimmer, convinced that compromise was thenceforth impossible, had taken a decided part. He had distinguished himself preeminently in the Convention. Nor was it without a peculiar propriety that he had been appointed to the honourable office of tendering the crown, in the name of all the estates of England, to the Prince and Princess of Orange. For our revolution, as far as it can be said to bear the character of any single mind, assuredly bears the character of the large yet cautious mind of Halifax. The Whigs, however, were not in a temper to accept a recent service as an atonement for an old offence, and the offence of Halifax had been grave indeed. He had long before been conspicuous in their front rank, during a hard fight for liberty. When they were at length victorious, when it seemed that Whitehall was at their mercy, when they had a near prospect of dominion and revenge, he had changed sides, and fortune had changed sides with him. In the great debate, on the Exclusion Bill his eloquence had struck them dumb, and had put new life into the inert and desponding party of the Court. It was true that, though he had left them in the day of their insolent prosperity, he had returned to them in the day of their distress. But, now that their distress was over, they forgot that he had returned to them, and remembered only that he had left them. The vexation with which they saw Danby presiding in the council, and Halifax bearing the privy seal, was not diminished by the news that Nottingham was appointed Secretary of State. Some of those zealous churchmen who had never ceased to profess the doctrine of non-resistance, who thought the revolution unjustifiable, who had voted for a regency, and who had to the last maintained that the English throne could never be one moment vacant, yet conceived it to be their duty to submit to the decision of the Convention. They had not, they said, rebelled against James, they had not selected William, but, now that they saw on the throne a sovereign whom they never would have placed there, they were of the opinion that no law, divine or human, bound them to carry the contest further. They thought that they found, both in the Bible and in the statute-book, directions which could not be misunderstood. The Bible enjoins obedience to the powers that be. The statute-book contains an act providing that no subject shall be deemed a wrongdoer for adhering to the king in possession. On these grounds many, who had not concurred in setting up the new government, believed that they might give it their support without offence to God or man. One of the most eminent politicians of this school was Nottingham. At his instance, the Convention had, before the throne was filled, made such changes in the oath of allegiance as enabled him and those who agreed with him to take that oath without scruple. My principles, he said, do not permit me to bear any part in making a king, but 
when a king has been made, my principles bind me to pay him an obedience more strict than he can expect from those who have made him. He now, to the surprise of some of those who most esteemed him, consented to sit in the council, and to accept the seals of secretary. William doubtless hoped that this appointment would be considered by the clergy and the Tory country gentlemen as a sufficient guarantee that no evil was meditated against the Church. Even Burnet, who at a later period felt a strong antipathy to Nottingham, owned, in some memoirs written soon after the Revolution, that the King had judged well, and that the influence of the Tory secretary, honestly exerted in support of the new sovereigns, had saved England from great calamities. The other secretary was Shrewsbury. No man so young had within living memory occupied so high a post in the government. He had but just completed his twenty-eighth year. Nobody, however, except the solemn formalists at the Spanish embassy, thought his youth an objection to his promotion. He had already secured for himself a place in history by the conspicuous part which he had taken in the deliverance of his country. His talents, his accomplishments, his graceful manners, his bland temper, made him generally popular. By the Whigs especially he was almost adored. None suspected that, with many great and many amiable qualities, he had such faults, both of head and of heart, as would make the rest of a life which had opened under the fairest auspices burdensome to himself, and almost useless to his country. End of chapter 11, part 2